this is what he said to me. What the F? He said, I am not Jewish. I'm an Irish Catholic. I think you have the greatest product on earth, but you can't <laughs> market it and package it worse and sell it worse. You know, you need to think about Judaism and Jewish life as if it's an iPod. Welcome to What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and in the Jewish community as a whole. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. In this episode, we are speaking with Jay Sanderson. Jay is a dear friend and president and CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles. He has a very interesting background. He's been active in the Jewish community for over 30 years, and he has been recognized on the Forward 50 list as one of America's leading entrepreneurs. Formerly, he was the CEO and executive producer of JTN Productions, where he created, produced, wrote over 700 hours of award-winning television programming, that would broadcast worldwide and led its broadband initiative, JewishTVNetwork.com. His producing credits include the landmark PBS series, The Jewish Americans, Wars and War, and the James Beard Award-nominated New Jewish Cuisine. In this conversation, we talked about how the COVID pandemic is impacting the Jewish community, both in LA and throughout North America, and how Jewish federations and the Jewish community as a whole is adapting to this new philanthropic reality. Since our conversation took place during Tisha B'Av, we also talked about that holiday's message for today, and somewhat ironically, since Tisha B'Av is a fast day, Jay's passion for cooking. Take a listen. Hi, Jay. Great to have you. Good to see you. I wish I was seeing you in person, but it's okay. Yes, well, sign of the times, sign of the times. We're doing this uh, over Zoom, so we apologize in advance if the quality of sound is not perfect, but uh, pandemics is not an excuse to stop the conversation. Let's talk about you for a minute. Did you ever think that you'd be in 2020 being where you are now, like running the Federation of LA? Is that in the path of your life, or is like one of these weird things that, you don't know how you ended up here. You know what? I, I now understand how I ended up here, but I never would have. Uh, my resume wouldn't direct me here. My life wouldn't direct me here. My interest wouldn't direct me here. And just for the case of full transparency, I, you know, I took this job saying I'd do it for 12 years. So not only did I never expect to be here, but I'm only a year and a half away from not being here. And so, you know, I look, I took this on at a moment where I was worried about the future of the Jewish community and, this, in my estimation, my job in LA is the best platform to really dream about and hopefully create a vibrant Jewish future. That's why I took the job and my life changed, my priorities changed. I saw my, what my kids were going through. I'm a storyteller by, by profession and I wanted to, to write the next story for the Jewish people. And I have no regrets in taking the position. I, it has been the most extraordinary ride of my life. I wish that I wasn't dealing with this catastrophe as we started with today. I wish I was doing the things I was planning to do in my last year and a half in this job. But at the end of the day, 
Los Angeles is, is an extraordinary Jewish community with great Jewish leaders, some of the great Jewish thinkers and rabbis in the Jewish world that I'm privileged to work with, with great lay leaders. Look, every challenge in LA is greater than it is anywhere else because of our geographic and denominational and ethnic spread and diversity. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, when we are successful here, we're a model for things that could happen in other countries so I, and other cities. I feel blessed to have this job. It was the smartest thing I did, even though I didn't do it thinking it was smart. And I'm trying to do the best I can in the time I have left. So keeping it personal, can you zero in on a moment in your childhood or in your teenage years that most shaped your Jewish consciousness? Andres, my life is the, is the entire uh, ups and downs of being a Jew in America. I was a victim of uh, a horrendous uh, anti-Semitic attack. Two people tried to uh, kill me when I was a, a teenager and uh, buried me in a hole and left me to die. Uh, buried me alive. I was in the, the hole for hours and hours and hours before someone heard me scream. I was 14 years old at the time. And so uh, on the one hand, I am a victim of a horrendous act of anti-Semitism that made me question the value of being Jewish. But then there was vision among some Jewish leaders and a rabbi in particular that thought the thing I needed to do to uh, move forward was to go to Israel. And so I was uh, the lucky recipient. I come from a, you know, I, I grew up in the projects outside of Boston. My dad died when I was very young. Um, I did, didn't have a lot of money but I was the, the community wanted to invest in me and, and they made an exception on, at the time, a, a global Jewish agency, Israel experience trip. And uh, I was able to, at the same time, that same summer, spend the summer in Israel. And then during that trip, I had a one-on-one -on -one experience with uh, David Ben-Gurion. And um, he took me aside, not knowing anything about me, me being the youngest person. And he asked me if I would promise him to always love and take care of his country. And those two experiences, the bookends of really being a victim and, and then really feeling saved and embraced and actually having this eye-to-eye -eye conversation with one of the great Jewish leaders of Jewish history, really on some subliminal level led me to be where I am right now. That's amazing. Uh, David Ben-Gurion, probably you saw him the last year he was alive. I mean, it was... Yeah. He died in 1973, so it's... Um, yeah, it was right before then. It was in wow, 73. Wow, that's one of the... I can understand how that shapes you. I'm sure that many people don't know about it, is that you're a chef and apparently quite a good one. Now, but wait, before you comment on that, I want to ask you two things. What are the parallels between being a chef and running a Jewish federation? Well, I think it's, it's everything we're talking about. I think, what does it mean to be a Jew? What it means to be a Jew is to be in a very embracing community, living by, by the Torah, right? By the values and the lessons that we learned from the Torah. And feeding people um, is the most direct way that you can show how you care about them, right? And it's very visceral. So uh, I love... Um, the experience of making people think and smile and rub their bellies when I've given them something different. I'm not, you know, I am a different kind of a chef 
than most people. I, I'm really cooking to not make you feel just nourished. I'm trying to make you think about what you're eating and what you're experiencing. And so for me, again, I'm a storyteller. That's how I define myself. I tell stories by what I write. I tell stories by what I tell. And I tell stories by what I put on a plate. Yeah, well, with talking about food in Tisha V'Av may not be the most, uh, <laughs> the easiest yeah, thing. But, but on the other hand, by the way, it is the right thing. Because when you take something away in order to have an experience, right, to connect to the destruction of the synagogue, you know, to me, fasting is a part of eating, right? It's the taking away and the context. My staff will tell you, Andres, my favorite word is context. Everything means something. But without context, it doesn't mean what it needs to mean. And so the context of fasting is the taking away and focusing on something else. And that's why actually it is connected. And uh, what, what would be a good recipe to break the fast? It, Surprise well, me. Well, we're living in the summertime and we're living in a time when we're stuck in our homes. And so to me, in the summer, no matter where you live, It's corn and tomato season. And so for me, if I was breaking the fast with you tonight, I would make you a just overwhelmingly blow you away gazpacho from ripe tomatoes, and in your case, tomatoes from the great state of New York. And I would probably be roasting some corn that I would be sprinkling a little bit of black truffle salt on to give you a little savory note on top of the sweetness of the summer corn. Truffle, that's very nice. Now, now, gazpacho with vinegar or with lemon? Vinegar. That, vinegar. vinegar, white vinegar. 100%. White vinegar. Yep. Sherry wine vinegar, I'm going to connect to some of your background yeah. and come up with some of the, the right uh, South American spices in this. I'm going to do a little more of a global gazpacho, not necessarily a traditional one. Again, I want to make you think, you know, the... The, one of the great restaurants I've eaten in in the world is called Barago in Santiago, Chile. So I do stories. So I'm, I'm uh, somebody who likes to do multi-course tasting menus. So at this restaurant, Barago, what they do is everything's indigenous, which is why I'm going back to let's cook something that's fresh and seasonal. And by the way, in the world we live in now, we have to support our farmers, our fishermen and women, um, our butchers. I think, you know, we have to really worry about the food ecosystem now. And so when you're dealing with things that are fresh, but also you're dealing with things that are global in their sensibility, we're able to tell Jewish stories. We live all over the world. I'm worried also, Andreas, that I don't want us to be Jews that live in three countries or two countries. I've always been concerned about Jewish life in other countries. And I know that's something that you deeply care about, uh, not just because of your own background, but because this is your interest. I want us to come out of this pandemic not just worried about Jews in New York and L.A., but making sure we're taking care of Jewish communities around the, you know, around the diaspora as well as our beloved state of Israel. Yeah, no, I think uh, a lot of what you said there, but uh, the food angle for Jewish engagement is one that I deeply care about and the international one as well. We're the first global tribe and sometimes we're so parochial that it sort of uh, boggles the mind. And I think, by the way, the, the fear is that we'll become more, right? The right. fear is, is that we have to look inward more because we're in, we're in jeopardy right now. And I, we have to challenge ourselves 
to look outward while we protect the things that we most care about. And it's kind of fascinating that the pandemic can give you the two conclusions. One conclusion is, listen, this is a global problem. It can only be solved by a global approach and by global cooperation. You know, if you solve it in one country, but it's rampant in the rest of the world, you achieve nothing. But the other conclusion is you have to close down, you have to close your borders, you have to look inwards, you have to fear the foreigner because they bring you disease. So it's very interesting, I think, how this dynamic would play in the Jewish community. Are we going to become isolationist and inward looking? Are we going to understand that solutions to global problems need to be global? I think it's uh, how we answer that question will be critical. I agree. And apropos pandemic, like we're having this conversation on Tisha B'Av, but we're also having this conversation on a day in which LA suffered an earthquake and um, a minor one, thanks God, but an earthquake nevertheless. So I guess that I got to mix these two things, the pandemic and the earthquake. And I guess that my first question for you, Jay, you, know, you run one of the, I think the second biggest federation in the country, probably one of the biggest nonprofits in the world, in the third biggest Jewish community in the world, this pandemic is a bleep or is an earthquake for you? Well, it's, it's both, frankly. It's a blip in that we built an infrastructure that got this community through the 2009 financial crises and the fires. We had really tragic fires two years ago. We have fires on top of earthquakes in Southern California. And so it's a blip in that we were prepared for a, a, a catastrophe, as, as prepared as you can be in a Jewish community, but a catastrophe because it is a catastrophe. It's, it's impacted, you know, lives and it's impacted institutions. I uh, describe this situation we're in as a four-act play. The first act was the immediate onslaught of social service need and, and tragedy. The second is the ecosystem, synagogues, schools, camps, et cetera, et cetera. The third is what will it be like when we can get back to some sense of normalcy pre-vaccine? And the fourth, and you've heard me talk about this before, the fourth is what happens after vaccine. So act one and act two are worse and longer than we expected when we started. So it is very catastrophic. One of the things that makes me think about it in terms of an, of an earthquake is that, you know, after a bleep, you go back to normal, quote unquote. You know, after an earthquake, you don't go back to normal. You have to rebuild. And you have to rebuild different there's a whole new theory of how you build after an, uh, an earthquake. So are you seeing this kind of thinking in your community? So, you know, it's an interesting timing because um, I have been saying for a long time that the Jewish community is not going to look the same when this is all over. We have an opportunity, Andres, you and I and other people who are fortunate enough to have these jobs running federations, foundations, large organizations. We have an opportunity to, to help the Jewish community look like we'd like it to look. You know, we have to be honest with ourselves. Much of the challenges we're facing today were exacerbated by COVID. They didn't get created by COVID, right? Synagogues were challenged with membership and challenged with affiliation before. School and enrollment was challenged before. All these things were challenged. This exacerbated it. So I like to say that 50% of the professionals I work with locally have vision and can see outside their institutions to help be a part of the process of helping Los Angeles look like we want it to look afterwards and half are thinking about their jobs and their institutions. And the greatest frustration I'm having right now is that I don't think there's enough vision in the Jewish community locally and globally to help us 
navigate this and create the Jewish community you and I would want to come out of this. How do we incentivize that thinking? I mean, I, I share your diagnosis. I'm, I'm often frustrated by the lack of thinking beyond your four qubits, you know, your own organizational boundaries. But I'm also frustrated that, you know, I don't seem to be able to pierce through that. Did you have any success, at least locally, to, to get people to think more collectively and more systemically, rather? It's happening less than I would like, and it's more isolated than I would like. I think as this pandemic progresses and lengthens, and LA is in a, a little bit of a spike right now, I think some folks are going to have to have a much more realistic look at what they're doing. But at the end of the day, um, you know, you run Jewish Funders Network, and which is a collaboration with many, many funders. At the end of the day, the only way this will really work, frankly, is with carrots and sticks. And the carrots are funders saying, you know what, I really like what you've been doing, but you can't do it this way. And I, and I really like what this other organization is doing, and maybe you need to be collaborating differently. Right, right. If yeah. funders, you know, it, 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 locally, I can tell you for sure, there are struggling institutions that were struggling pre-COVID that were held together with chewing gum and spit, and usually <laughs> by, one, by one funder who, you know, wants to keep it alive. That thinking, that mindset is actually now hurting the Jewish community. And I'm hoping, frankly, that the people that listen to this interview and the funders that you and I know will have vision and will, if necessary, with carrots and sticks, bring the Jewish community along. Amen, amen to that. But at the same time, you know, you, you kind of have to be careful. And you and I discussed about this a lot. The funders don't necessarily know the local realities, right? Like yes. carrots and sticks are fine, but nobody can go to LA and pretend to know LA better than you, right? So, right. so it's carrots and sticks, but at the same time, it's a collaborative approach to the folks on the ground that know best the fabric of the community. Before I took this job 10 and a half years ago, I was a critic of the federation system. I don't, I don't think umbrella organizations are what we need uh, in Jewish life. And so I have changed my mind, partly because we changed our business model in LA, but partly because I have worked very closely as the chair of the large city execs with you know, my colleagues in 16 other uh, Jewish communities. And I see that they do actually know. And I think it's time for people to understand the power of federation in that uh, at the end of the day, federation execs specifically do have their finger on the pulse of what's going on in their communities. And funders, national and local, even if they don't want to work with federations, are making a mistake to at least not talk to federations. Right. There's good, you know, encouraging signals there. I, I see that a lot of funders are realizing that the federation can be an amazing delivery system for the project. Like, you know, when you see programs like you, you for example, have a partnership with PJ Library. Like, that's a program of an independent philanthropy, but it couldn't have grown to where it grows without partnership with the federation, correct? A hundred percent. Look, I think that oftentimes national initiatives, we'll use Birthright as an example, you know, get set up backwards and think that they can dictate. And that's my issue with some of these national and global initiatives is if they're not talking directly with what's going on in a local community, and I've said this to the Jewish agency and to many other of our partners, you actually don't know what's going on in the ground in L.A., and so let us help you, right? Because right. good programs can become great programs. PJ is an example of a great program. We have more than quadrupled the amount of families getting PJ Library, and we've been able to add tremendous amounts of local 
bells and whistles to elongate the experience, to deepen the experience. We've done it with birthright. We've done it with honeymoon. And so, yes, and as we move into the new world, where there'll be less resources and greater challenges, the need for collaboration locally and nationally among big programs and small programs is, is paramount. I think it's what's been, what the new initiative from Repair the World is another example of the recognition that you've got to work with local communities in order to build something that's going to have national legs. I mean, I couldn't agree more. The only thing I would note, though, is that this works only when the funder sees the value of the Federation, but when also the Federation is flexible enough not to corner itself into the sort of the monopoly of the annual campaign. In other words, nothing wrong with the annual campaign. I'm a big fan of it. But when the only option a funder has to engage with the Federation is through the annual campaign, you're going to be leaving people outside. I agree with you. Look, we, we, when I started, I did a very serious analysis of the annual campaign concept and how could it grow in a, in a world where you and I know that our grandparents' generation gave out of a sense of obligation that carried to their kids, our parents. But it's gone now. Now people want to be, and you know this because you're sitting in a place where this happens every moment. People want to give because they feel connected and they want to feel passion and they want to see that they're making an impact. And the annual campaign is very important to keep the infrastructure of a community whole. But we created a thing called strategic philanthropy, which is One, if we had twice as much money, how would we spend it? But two, what are the big things that we know we need to do where outside funders can feel this way? And honestly, Andreas, when we started this initiative of strategic philanthropy, which is not directed giving, it really is partnerships. When we started it, you know, a number of years ago, what was the result? Our annual campaign grew as well. So, yes, of course, we're sitting down and look, we want to sit down with funders and dream with funders about how we can make an impact in Los Angeles. And and in Los Angeles, you know, more than most communities, we have the ability to to see our community as a laboratory uh, of things that we could be doing that could go out nationally. And I think, you know, New York and L.A. and Chicago, to some extent, you know, the biggest cities have the biggest opportunity to really do something that looks local but becomes national and is national and is able to grow local. To give some texture to what you just said, you're absolutely right. People don't give today out of a sense of loyalty. Not only young people, even older people are going away of that concept. We surveyed our members and we found out that only 14%, one four, give out of a sense of obligation or Jewish guilt. 72% give because they want to achieve an impact. Now, granted, it's a unique sample. It's people that are already philanthropists. But it tells you where people are going and that fundraising based on thinking as a Jewish tax, you may like it ideologically, but it's not going to get you very far if you're not open to the other forms. Now, you're absolutely right that when you engage people, they end up giving more to the campaign as well, because the only predictor of giving is not age, is not wealth. Like it's not that wealthy people give more than poor people. It's not that older people give more than young. The only predictor is how engaged they are. The more engaged they are, the more they give. And all these projects are a way of engaging them. And I'm sure you see this locally. Like you invested, I think, as much in engagement that you invested in fundraising and that paid. Yeah. Yeah. And look, we we did something relatively risky, which was we took basically all of our young adult engagement and pulled it out of the campaign. It was very revolutionary in the federation system that we're not looking at you as just a donor. We're at a moment pre-COVID, post-COVID. We're in a moment where what it means to be Jewish is changing. And our ability to 
to get people connected to Jewish institutions is incredibly challenged. So we have to meet people where they are, find what they care about, not just about philanthropy, but about being a Jew in the world today. And if you don't do that the right way, if we have no Jewish community or a disengaged Jewish community, philanthropy will fall apart as well. And we are, Andreas, hitting a perfect storm where the majority of our biggest donors are leaving us. They're older. And we have done a lousy job communally of engaging their kids and grandkids. And their grandkids are having questions about Jewish life that we haven't been prepared to answer or unwilling to answer. And this storm has to be navigated because we're, we might be raising more money today for most people, but that is not sustainable. And it has nothing to do with COVID. Yeah, and it's not sustainable also if we don't engage in things like spiritual quests and Jewish education and things like we go more to the why than to the how. I think we're very good at the how. Like we had great programs. We don't always have the same level of investment in thinking and content and things that really move people today. I'll tell you a funny story, which is when the Pew Report came out and I was invited, I'm sure you were too, to speak on all these panels all over the country and, yeah. and in Israel and places like that about the impact of the Pew Report. I asked a friend who is probably one of the first real brand masters in, in Hollywood and on Madison Avenue for a favor. I wanted to talk to the highest ranking Apple executive that had uh, marketing and sales Uh, portfolio. And uh, this is an Irish Catholic from Boston. I'm from Boston as well. And I asked him for three hours, two hours to go through the entire Pew Report, not just the abbreviated and the whole thing, um, which had geographic breakdowns in it as well. And one hour to talk to me. So three months go by, this guy who has a very Irish last name, calls me on the phone. I don't know if I can swear on, on this conversation, but I will anyway. You can, you can. We'll bleep said, it, it's fine. This, this, this is what he said to me. What the F? He said, I am not Jewish. I'm an Irish Catholic. I think you have the greatest product on earth, but you can't <laughs> market it and package it worse and sell it worse. You know, you need to think about Judaism and Jewish life as if it's an iPod, as if it's an iPhone. iPods, iPhones, iPads have become parts of people, an extension of people. Jewish life and Judaism needs to become an extension of a person and you are pushing people away. You're pushing your consumer away instead of driving a consumer and you have a great product. You've got to figure out how to package it better. You've got to figure out how to market it better and you have to figure out how to sell it better. And the only way you do that is connecting better with the consumer and you're failing. That's very interesting. That's a very interesting comparison. The only twist I would add to that which I think it's, a, it's not a minor one, is that the Apple and the iPhone, they are part of you, indeed. They become part of you. You can't dissociate from them. The only thing that we need to do is just insert it in my brain somehow. But the difference with Judaism is that the iPhone does not offer a response to existential yearnings and spiritual quests. And I think that that's what people are looking for today. Not just something that is utilitarian and nicely packaged, especially after the pandemic, like when people confront death in such a crude way. I agree. And that's what he meant about the product. Look, I think, Andreas, we are making some miscalculations about Gen Xers, wires, and in general, my experience, and I have kids that are, you know, 30, almost 32 and 27, they uh, yearn for spirituality and community in a way that I don't. 
Actually, Agreed. And Agreed. Again, we are not doing our jobs by giving them what they're asking for. And we, so, we think they right. want, yeah, we, we think and that they are like us, that they are selfish like we are, <laughs> that they are apathetic like we are. They're not. My kids are no. engaged. They care. When we come out of the pandemic, if we're not ready for this, you know, there's some very positives out of the pandemic in terms of the use of technology. If we come out of the pandemic weaker, And if we don't take the learnings and understand the needs, we're going to take 10 steps back as a Jewish community, which is why it's imperative for us to figure out where we're investing our resources and energies on what the strategies are to build a stronger, resilient, more vibrant Jewish community post-COVID. We said before we are in Tisha B'Av, and uh, we all know that Tisha B'Av sort of remembers the destruction of the temple that, according to the sources, happens because of sinat chinam, internal sin hatred among Jews. And it's just not the Talmudic sources. That's what history tells you. Like, the destruction of the temple happens, uh, first of all, the Roman conquest of Israel happens because of a civil war between Jews. The big rebellion against Rome was actually a civil war. And the Romans could actually conquer Jerusalem because the Jews were deeply divided. And I fear that we are now in an era of big Jewish division and big Jewish polarization, probably more than I remember in my lifetime. And that precisely on Tisha B'Av, that worries me enormously. Do you share my concern? Am I crazy? No, I feel that in your, yeah. Los Angeles is an interesting city in a lot of ways. People don't recognize that they think that LA is a very liberal city, a liberal Jewish community. But the truth is, we are a very split Jewish community. We are we are very polarized. We have a lot of Jews in the community that are would define themselves as conservatives on the right, and we have a lot of Jews in the community that would say they're progressives on the left. And um, we're at a moment right now where uh, there's a massive gap between the two. There's no common thinking. It is infiltrating everything. And um, it's unhealthy and unproductive. And of course, I'm deeply worried about it. The, the social protests have exacerbated some of those divisions. The politics in Washington and the upcoming elections will exacerbate it more. Israel is unfortunately driving some of this. Uh, and so I'm, I'm deeply worried about it. And I don't know what to do about it because what I'm experiencing is people are digging into their positions. They're not open to talking to people or reading or understanding the other side. And um, I worry that this could be the, the actual worst thing that's going to happen to us, uh, maybe even worse than COVID-19 you know, all the time. There's, there's no intellectual curiosity towards the other side. I don't really care what you think. I don't, you know, you're the enemy and my task is to destroy you, not to understand you. And I can't build a community like that, can you? No, and there's, I think, unfortunately, there are many individuals invested in keeping it that way and even exacerbating it on the right. left and right. Yeah. I mean, I, you, know, I, you know, from people on the right, you hear about anti-Semitism on the left. People on the left, you hear anti-Semitism on the right. They're both right. And it's not any better or worse. Anti-Semitism is bad. Anti-Israel sentiments and BDS is bad. Wherever it's coming from is not good for the Jewish people. But we're at a place where the conversation is, if it exists, is devolving. My dear friend, Richard Sandler, who was the chair of my federation when I started and, and also the chair of Jewish Federations of North America, always used to say, you know, we need to find 
the adults in the room. Well, I'm finding less and less adults. I am proud of the fact that in LA, we do have rabbis, some very serious, significant rabbis who are making sure that they are not leaning in one direction and that they are preaching from the pulpit and teaching from the pulpit how we need to become a, a stronger less divided community. So we are seeing some leadership from some of the rabbis, but at the end of the day, even there are rabbis in our community that are taking positions that are not necessarily better for the whole. Yeah, and and I would say one of the terrible things is that one of the problems that you surely feel in your community is that you're being clovered by both sides because you try to keep an organization that is based on consensus. Like the, the very idea of the Federation is we're going to be a big tent and we're going to try to hold everybody, even those who disagree. But that invariably will land you blows from the left and from the right. If no one knows who I'm voting for in the election. It doesn't matter what my politics are. It doesn't matter how much I navigate it. Uh, look, a month and a half ago or so, I got killed by a very left progressive uh, blogger and by a very right uh, blogger. In the same week, I did a, a town hall meeting with the mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti, who is a personal friend and also a mayor and, and a Jewish mayor. And we talked about what was going on in the, in the city. And it was at the beginning of a social protest. But we were talking about COVID as well. And I complimented the chief of police, Michael Moore, chief of police in Los Angeles, Michael Moore, when Tree of Life happened Within 30 minutes of it happening, he called me on the telephone, asked me how we could help the Jewish community. I asked him if, if a police car could go to every synagogue in Los Angeles. There are hundreds of them to make sure that if you knew about the shooting in Pittsburgh, you felt safer. If you were in an Orthodox synagogue, you just felt good seeing a police officer. He said yes right away. The police department has been very supportive of the Jewish community, especially when we're addressing anti-Semitism and security. I said it. It's a fact. The progressive uh, blogger just destroyed me. The same week, there were all these horrible stories going out about Kristallnacht in Los yeah, Angeles. Yeah. None of that is factually true. The anti-Semitism connected was completely oversaid. And yes, there was some anti-Semitic graffiti. Yes, but there's anti-Semitic graffiti before the social protests. Anti-Semitism in Los Angeles is an issue, but not more of an issue. First of all, if a non-Jew co-opted the concept of Kristallnacht or pogroms, the Jewish community would go after that. These were Jews saying it. And folks that weren't even in Los Angeles in the first place um, got clobbered, as well as many other rabbis that, that came out and, and supported what I said got clobbered. Look, I am not going to be, uh, as the leader of the Jewish community and the Federation, I'm not going to change how I behave because of people in, on the extremes on either side. My job, you're right, is to build a vibrant Jewish community where everybody has a seat at the table. But if you don't want to have a seat at the table, I'm not interested in talking to you. Right. But you're not going to be coerced into silence because you're you and, you know, you have the backing of your board. And, but I'm worried not about guys like us. And the same with me. I can say things and I guess that some people don't say those things. I don't like the things I write and I'll live with it. But I'm worried about folks that are younger, you know, a young healer director that you know, makes a faux pas, invites the wrong person to give a lecture or tweets the wrong thing and the, the professional life is over. Like that's what worries me more. You know, and these are things that people, we need to help them feel safe in this highly polarized time. Yeah, I agree. But I will also say that, you know, you and I know each other very well. And you and I, we are very authentic 
and we have authentic voices. But I have to be frank, which is that I, I don't say 50% of the things I, I would say if I wasn't the CEO of the Jewish Federation. I, I am very thoughtful, even for me, about what I say and what I write, because uh, at the end of the day, I do have to represent in some way, shape, or form um, the whole Jewish community. I always tell people that they want me to be the voice of the Jewish community, but they only want me to be their voice. But I have to find constructive ways uh, to say what I want to say. And oftentimes the things I say that are most impactful are in small rooms you know, that you're not going to hear about later anyway. The statements that Jewish organizations make have minimal impact. I think people yeah. like them, they want them, but they really don't make impact. It's what I'm saying yeah. in, in Washington or I'm saying in Sacramento or what I'm saying in City Hall or what I'm saying in Jerusalem, one-on-one or in a small group, that's where it matters most. But most people, you know, they, they like the optics of a big policy statement. And, you know, I've been a very uh, strong proponent of saying less and doing more. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more with you. And, and I hope that people listen to this and say, this politics of statesmen is so, is such a waste of time. Like there are organizations, if you're an advocacy organization, if you're the ADL, your business is to put out statements, right? But if you're a federation, if you're the Jewish Funders Network, your business is to do programs, to fund, to educate funders in my case. We make much bigger impact by educating funders on issues like Israel, racial justice, we'll pick the issue. It's much of a bigger impact when we discuss with them and when we educate them, we expose them to different opinions that if we spend weeks uh, fighting about whether we put this or that word in a statement that probably 10 people are going to read and people are going to find fault with anyways. And I guess that in the Federation is the same story. The energy that goes into, we need a statement and then what does the statement say and why this word and not that word and, you know. I have been working myself personally very directly on on our local college campuses fighting against BDS. And there are many organizations that are in the business of yelling and screaming and and making a lot of noise. And there is sometimes value in that. But generally, the amount of work that I've been able to do and our federations be able to do it uh, on our college campuses has been highly impactful. We are trusted by the administrations. We're trusted by the students. And why are we trusted? Because we listen because we're working behind the scenes to make policy changes and to influence the influencers. And we're not just criticizing and yelling and screaming. And as a Jewish community, there are many elements of the community that think yelling and screaming is the most impactful way. And I can tell you, I know for a fact, as you do too, that the best work is done even by Jonathan Greenblatt and the ADL. I know know for a fact that what Jonathan is doing behind the scenes is often more impactful than any statements even ADL puts out. So we don't have necessarily a Jewish community that always understands that. But and, right. I, and I'm not somebody who wants the Federation to get credit for things. I'm not about that. I'm about making change, impact, and really getting the community to really influence the kinds of things we need to influence. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm not going to yell and scream anyway. I'm going to talk to you one-on-one about where I think we can work together to make change. Well, something I tell my funders all the time is if you're going to follow one rule in philanthropy is never fund a Jewish organization whose main role is to attack other Jewish organizations. And you do have folks that, you know, 80% of what they do is attacking how others organizations that are doing the work do the work. They're not doing the work, they're just attacking. So I said, you know, both in the left and on, and on the right, my criticism to 
an organization like If Not Now, for example, is that, okay, just criticize, but what are you doing, right? You know, and the same with organizations like ZOA, you know, like it, the most extremes are generally use an, an enormous amount of time in criticizing the work of other organizations instead of actually dealing with the issues. Look, you're, you're giving examples of organizations that have zero interest in dialogue, right? You know, If Not Now has been at my building um, multiple times, and I go outside, you know, they're trying to block the entrance and do all those kinds of disruptive things. I go outside. I've done it three times. I've gone outside and said, come on upstairs. Let's have a conversation. And the yeah. interest of it not yeah. now was to get arrested and blame the Federation, right? So there are many organizations in the community and, and, and they might have good intentions. I'm not going to question their intentions, but they have zero interest in dialogue and zero interest in, in really thinking about moving the community forward. And we have to call that out, frankly. We have to call that out. And even at the GA, you know, it happens that one of the founders of If Not Now is someone that I know, parents I know, you know, the GA that was last in Israel, they're out boycotting. I walk right up to them and say, come on in, let's talk. Zero interest. First of all, there are far less of us than we want to admit. And at the end of the day, if the idea is to make noise and they feel like that's the answer, I guess that's their strategy. I'm about building a strong and vibrant Jewish community, and I have zero interest in leaving a, an important voice out of the conversation, but I also have zero interest in trying to be in a conversation where the other person doesn't want to talk to me. Yeah, yeah 100%. I mean, a genuine engagement. We're missing that so much. And, and I think that that's part of your success in LA. People may like me not like what you do but you do often you do open a door for genuine engagement with people and that's and that results in a stronger community but going back to this point of what makes a community stronger what are the particular initiatives that you do in los angeles or you've done in your tenure that make you the most proud in terms of strengthening the community first of all Every community is the same and every community is different. You know, I, I produced a series called The Jewish Americans on PBS. It was a pretty significant success in, in my career. And I learned a lot about how Jews came to America. And I learned a lot about why Jews moved west. Jews moved west to basically, you know, leave institutional life, to chart a new frontier. It's why Hollywood began. It's, there's so much about it. So I understand why people came to California, why they came to Los Angeles. And we're very different. We don't have the same tight-knit Jewish community that they do in Cleveland. In Cleveland, your grandfather went to the deli that your father went to that you go to, right? And that's not in Los Angeles. You know, we have the largest geography of any federation in North America, and people can live anywhere. You can live by the beach. You can live by the mountains. You can be along to a synagogue. You can not belong to a synagogue. You can meet a rabbi at the gas station. So it's very, very different. So the first thing that I, we needed to accept is that we're not going to be able to replicate the Jewish community in Cleveland or Pittsburgh or Chicago. Let's embrace what we have. There's also lots of Jewish organizations. So I think, you know, the first thing I did was I went on a listening tour and I created relationships and I understood what the needs were. I also did something, Andreas, that I, I remain uh, most proud of, which was to acknowledge the fact that we are the Jewish Federation. I knew I couldn't change the logo or the name. I doubled the size of the word Jewish that the needs in the Jewish community and the priorities in the Jewish community needed to be at the forefront of what we did, that we needed to be honest with ourselves, that we weren't going to solve the problems in every other community 
without solving our own problems first, right? I, I always call it the American Airlines view of the world. When you get on the plane, they say when the mask falls down, put it on your own face first. So I, I, I put a stake in the ground and I said, we're going to take care of the Jewish community first and then we'll look to the greater community and figure out how we can be better partners. And that built a different kind of a platform. It allowed us to create different kinds of relationships. Look, I've talked to 40 pulpit rabbis in the last three weeks. I called them to ask them, how they're doing personally, and what they need. And those conversations are as important as where we partner and how we invest our resources. And that's the kind of community I think that we've been able to build as a federation, a different kind of a Jewish community, and we've been able to address the needs. It allowed us to really help the camps that burned down two years ago and, and lobby in Sacramento to get $23.5 million dollars we have built strong relationships politically. We've built strong relations communally. And we've been able to be authentic and, and transparent in what, what our goals are and how we wanted to move the community forward. And it's been going to the back and beginning of the conversation. The reason why this on some level is more of a blip than a catastrophe is we have been able to do things in a different way because of the relationships and the partnerships and because we're not an organization that just writes checks, we're an organization that values partnerships and relationships. Yeah, and the, and the most overused word in this pandemic is the word pivot. People are pivoting. Um, but I think that people miss the real meaning of the word pivot. Like when, when you pivot, I'm, my thing is soccer, your I think is basketball. But when you do a pivot in basketball, one leg stays strongly anchored on the ground and the other one moves. So what you're describing now, apropos bleep or earthquake, what you're saying is this, we built that strong leg anchored on the ground and that allows the other leg to move and change and do new programs very rapidly. That's a brilliant analogy, 100% correct. You mentioned something that it's it's been an obsession of mine, also from my upbringing. And like you, I come from a from a family of very very modest means and very attuned to Jewish need and Jewish welfare needs. And uh, one of my fights with the philanthropic community was to realize, to help them realize that there is a lot of Jewish poverty out there. And you know, you mentioned New York. And New York is supposed to have a big Haredi population and people dismiss it saying, oh, well, the Haredi are poor. It's not true. There is poverty in every religious and ethnic group. And can you give some texture to that from the LA perspective? Sure. And by, by the way, I always I give credit to our dear friend Rachel Monroe from the Weinberg Foundation of the study they did uh, about Jewish poverty. And I think that we, we don't understand our community in the way that we think we do. Even to our to the Jewish community, we look different than we are. We believe that we have between 30 and 50,000 really poor Jews pre-COVID in our community, including Holocaust survivors and, and seniors that are stuck in one-bedroom apartments with the inability to pay for the kinds of things that we assume they can pay for, their, their medicine, doctor's appointments, food, things like that. And, and obviously, COVID has exacerbated that. So we, we see it. We understand it. And we have to deal with it now that we have a new generation of people that will be poor because of COVID. But there's a significant population in Los Angeles, New York, in uh, most communities of poor Jews, that the complications of poor Jews are actually different than, than most other communities. More often than not, poor Jews don't know how to ask for help. I always like to say that pride has two sides, 
right? There's the positive side. You know, we always talk about Jewish pride. There's the negative side. A Jew in trouble doesn't want to ask for help, doesn't know how to ask for help. And so what we've learned in Los Angeles, I learned it right away when I took this job, is when Jew, a Jew is in trouble and they've lost their job in 2009, when Jews in the community lost their job, they waited um, to call and then they didn't know how to call. So when you have your first problem, you lose your job, then you immediately need to know what to do, how to access unemployment, et cetera, et cetera. And if you don't call, the next thing you know is you can't pay your rent. The next thing you know is you can't pay for food. And so what I found when I first started was Jews that were coming to us eventually with five problems, not one, and we needed to create an infrastructure, which we did called the Ezra Network in LA, to be able to address the five needs, not just the one need. And if the person came uh, with the one need, to assume there'll be four other needs. And so we built an infrastructure in partnership with our social service partners who are non-sectarian, by the way, are not prioritizing Jewish clients because they can't. We can, right? I was speaking at a conference in Vegas at the time that we set this up. And I said, you know, I don't believe that there's a meeting of Catholic charities where they're saying, what do we do about Jewish poverty? (laughs) And the head of Catholic charities, Andreas, came up to me afterwards and said, you make me feel bad, but you're correct, right? Now, we have lessons that we can teach other communities and we shouldn't be isolated and we do need to help the, the whole community because if our neighbors are in trouble, we're in trouble too. But we have a serious Jewish poverty issue in America and in the world pre-COVID and now post-COVID. I'm telling you right now, every day that this pandemic happens, more people are unemployed. So you had one person that might have been unemployed in a family, you know, three months ago. Now you have two people. Um, we have college students, by the way, on our campuses in Los Angeles, I know nationally, we have to start addressing, who pay for their day-to-day life in college by a part-time job, and they lost that part-time job. We have poverty among young people in this country and in the Jewish community. And if we don't address it, who will? Yeah, right? no, who I'm, will? And, and this notion that poor Jews are only elderly, it's factually wrong. I mean, I know, for example, in in, uh, New York, there are 13,000 Jewish students that go to Hillel to eat, you know, so it's not just elderly, it's the young as well. And I hope that the funders realize the need for addressing this issue. I mean, historically, we thought, oh, whatever, the federations are taking care of that. We don't have to, but the need is too big. We want the federations to focus more on engagement and this and that. On the other hand, who's taking care of the basic needs? So we can't have it both ways. So I, I salute what the Weinberg Foundation is doing in terms of incentivizing funders to care more about issues like Jewish poverty. And I totally agree with you that there's concentric circles of solidarity and your solidarity is not genuine to the outer circle if you don't have solidarity to the inner circle first. Do you have three more minutes or? Uh, I, for you, Andres, I have three more minutes. Great. So I'm gonna, I, that, I'm gonna I don't want you. that. By the way, I don't want that edited out. I want all the homage I'm paying to you, uh, and, and, and the, the extraordinary. <laughs> by the way, I don't. I, I think that people that are listening to this should know that you are among the best Jewish professionals I've ever worked with. Uh, no matter where you are, whether you're in Montreal or whether you're in the position you're in now, I love your authenticity. I love your voice. You're a person who walks the walk. You don't just talk the talk. And so I, I think that you should be commended for the leadership you've given to not just JFN, but to the Jewish world, especially during the pandemic. Thank you so much. And coming from you, it, it really means a lot. Now, I want to ask you 
Two last questions. One is you mentioned things that the pandemic is sort of accelerating in terms of bad things that the pandemic is accelerating, right? Like this problem with school enrollments. But are there good things that are being accelerated by the pandemic? Yeah. I mean, first of all, um, I say it all the time, you know, I'm blown away by the inspiration and creativity of many of the rabbis in the Jewish world and certainly by my local rabbis. And I'm blessed in Los Angeles to have dozens of brilliant, just dynamic rabbis who are taking advantage of technology. They're teaching Torah in their, in their living rooms. They're doing creative things. I think the high holidays are going to show uh, the capability of a lot of our, of our rabbis and synagogues. And so I think we, we're learning to use technology positively, both in Jewish education and in uh, Jewish engagement and in synagogue life. We need to take those lessons and we need to move it forward. Look at the Federation in Los Angeles. We're engaging with more people than we ever did. Now we have to, it's not the same as being in the same room. I miss hugging people. I miss hugging you. We can't go and keep this. But there are many lessons in terms of the use of technology that we have to figure out how we're going to maximize. And there are many lessons of things that we need to correct. I think that the Jewish community owns, this is among the more controversial things I'll say, the Jewish community owns too much real estate. Uh, we own too many buildings. The buildings were never full before. Let's be honest about it, right? Let's be honest that we don't need as many campuses we don't need as many rabbinical schools. We don't need as many physical synagogues. We don't need as many physical schools. We just don't. They cost a lot of money. We've learned to live without some of these things. And we've also learned that the costs associated with the real estate and the buildings are not where we should be spending money. We should be spending money on people and not on buildings. Now, we need institutions to get past it and say, we don't need this. And, and the same thing with the umbrella organizations that are crying that they, you know, that they don't have the resources. And the organizations that moved away from their Jewish purposes, you know, to stay in business, they, you know, well, okay, we don't, we don't need 100% Jewish enrollment. We don't need 100% Jewish participation. We're going to justify 50% or 60%. Let's be frank. If the mission of the organization is to build on Jewish life, to create vibrant Jewish life, and we're doing less of it in order to keep the building open, come on, let's be honest about that. I couldn't agree more, and especially on Tisha B'Av. You know, we proved that we lost our main building. We lost the temple in Jerusalem, and that didn't destroy Judaism. Actually, there's an argument that Judaism became richer and more diverse and more vibrant spiritually when we didn't have the temple. That's a little heretical of me to say, but... The metaphor is a little too brutal, but I think that we become prisoner of the real estate. And that's a big, big problem because it limits our thinking in dire ways. You know, look, do I wish that I'm going to be in show on the high holidays? Of course I do. And I'm fortunate, you know, I belong to several synagogues, but I, I like to go to different synagogues and learn from different rabbis and experience different communities. It's one of the beautiful parts of my position. At the end of the day right now, um, you can, Andreas, during these high holidays, Learn from Rabbi Sharon Browse, from Rabbi David Wolpe, from Rabbi Coleman Top, from Elazar Muskin, from great rabbis in Los Angeles, from Naomi Levy. By naming one, I'm not naming many others. I am going to learn and pray with a dozen rabbis during this high holidays. I would never be able to do it otherwise. I won't be in a building. I won't be able to hug people afterwards. But I am going to take advantage of what we have right now is the opportunity to hear 
many voices and learn from many great teachers. And I hope we build upon that when we're able to get back together. Last question, and this is also personal. Maybe a little bit too personal, but I, I know you are sort of authentic and, and you don't shy away from talking about yourself. You had a couple of family losses in the last few months and, and they were painful and, and uh, you've been very open about it. Now, I want to finish by asking you, when those loved ones look down and your work in the community, what do you think they're most proud of? Uh, based on the uh, extraordinary outpouring I got from many of our friends and colleagues who always said specifically about my twin brother, that they remember me talking about my twin brother. I hope that my brother understands specifically that um, I have been an extension of him, that I have been able to do the things that if he had had the capacity and the ability, because he was severely mentally retarded, that he would have done because he was the most loving, giving human being that I have ever met, which is why the loss is so, so deep for me and, and my wife and my children. Everything I have done, every lesson that I've learned has been from the people in my life that I've lost, uh, and specifically my brother. Um, I am the person I am, the man I am, the father, the son, the husband, the Jewish professional, the storyteller I am because of the lessons that my brother taught me unknowingly. And I hope that he is seeing in heaven with my father by his side that I continue that. And that is a beautiful way of ending because I know that the same way he's looking down at you and being proud of what you are doing and the same way he uh, impacted your life, you are impacting thousands of lives in Los Angeles, around the world, and including my own life who's richer from knowing you. So thank you. Thank you for all you do. And uh, thank you for talking to us. Thank you, my dear friend. Thanks so much to Jace Anderson for taking the time to speak with me today. You can learn more about him and about the Jewish Federation of Los Angeles at jewishla.org. And thank you all for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, about guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us, write us at communications at jfunders.org. And you can keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and Facebook and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at Spokovini. I'll leave you with a quote from the great Abraham Yeshua Heschel, who said, the Jewish people is a messenger that forgot its message. So in these crazy times in which we live, let's remember our message. Let's keep growing, keep giving, And join us next time on What Gives.